בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, ברוכים הבאים. We are back, ברוך השם, back to our series of the Jewish Ashkafa. Series uh, based on the teachings of the Chazonish, Sefer, Emunah and Bitachon. Series we've been doing already for a couple of years and uh, took a little bit of a break, an extended break over the last three months, but ברוך השם, uh, we thought about it, we learned it. We reviewed it, and it's time for us to continue it, Baruch Hashem. Uh, the uh, series has certainly transformed many lives, including our own, just from uh, the very basic understanding of what a Jew is supposed to think like. Uh, but quite frankly, as many of you uh, have seen, this is uh, many of this, uh, the teachings that the uh, Chazonish has been teaching us have been applicable to all of mankind. And anyone that's applied even part of the teachings to their lives has certainly seen uh, positive changes. Tonight's shiur is going to be for the Refuah uh, Shlema, for Rabbanit Levana Bat Sarah, Rav Ephraim Ben Shulamit, Rabbanit Sarah Bat Anat, Avimori David Ben Esriya, Imi Morati Doris Bat Jora, and all of Am Yisrael and all the righteous Noahides that continue to support our organization and uh, watch our lectures and uh, share them and uh, donate and do all the wonderful things that they are doing, especially the volunteers that help us behind the scenes whenever possible. Uh, just as a uh, reminder to all of you, we still have, uh, Baruch Hashem, our Kiruv store for anyone that wants to do outreach in their community and wants to get some uh, of our uh, books that are in Hebrew or the uh, USBs that have our teachings in English uh, for free to give them out in your community here in the States uh, or in Israel. Uh, you could just go to kiruvstore.org. Uh, that's K-I-R-U-V. S-T-O-R-E dot org and you can get yourself some of these things uh, to distribute in your community. In, uh, in Israel, we don't have many USBs, uh, but uh, we, Baruch Hashem, have uh, plenty of books and we just got a uh, new book order, Baruch Hashem, uh, that uh, Baruch Hashem is going to be English and Hebrew. We haven't put it on the site yet because literally the shipment just arrived uh, today, but Baruch Hashem, uh, that's going to be available very soon, both in the States and in, the, uh, in Israel. Aside from that, uh, this, of course, is the uh, end of the uh, secular year, but uh, for any of you that uh, not only want to do a mitzvah of publicizing a Kadosh Baruch Hu's name and being part of the Kiddush Hashem that our organization is doing on a daily basis and also having the additional tax benefits, uh, there's only a couple, of a couple of weeks left to the year. I know that some of you wait uh, until this time to make your donations. Please uh, donate uh, on our uh, website, Bezratashem.org or bhtorah.org uh, to help us do a lot of the uh, big things that we are uh, doing and actually uh, working on doing uh, in this uh, next year. We need uh, quite a bit more than we ever got before. So any of you that uh, have the feeling that uh, something big could be happening and you want to be part of it, certainly this is the uh, place. And I've seen quite a few times when people have taken Bezrat Hashem our organization as their top uh, priority in their life. Uh, They've seen major changes uh, in their life and their financial status. Uh, but this is, again, not just uh, people that are just donating one time and never again, people that really make it part of their life. And uh, unfortunately, I've seen also the opposite, as I've told you guys several stories where people benefited after donating to the organization. A lot more money came in. Hashem brought them a lot more blessings. But then for whatever reason or another, they fell for the uh, Yetzirah to convince them to uh, do other things, and unfortunately, the uh, blessing went to other people. 
So uh, this is not a threat. This is just simply a reality. You guys always ask me for real-life stories. This is a real-life story that unfortunately repeats itself from time to time. So uh, if you want to be part of everything that we're doing, now is the time to help us. There's an enormous amount of uh, investments that we need for the kolel, another two kolels now, and uh, the bedin, the new bedin needs uh, a lot of help. And of course, if we're going to be building a community here in the States, uh, we're going to have to make that decision in these next several months uh, because, uh, you know, time, the clock is ticking. And uh, we're going to need uh, quite a bit uh, of help from you guys to do that. And Bezat Shem, uh, you know, everyone is, uh, becomes part of it. Last but not least, for all of you that uh, not only enjoy the shiurim, but enjoy even more the live events uh, where uh, you come, you see, and you uh, get the shiur. And also after that, uh, you get to ask a few personal questions, get a blessing. We're going to be doing a live uh, shiur in the next uh, uh, several weeks on January 10th. On January 10th. Uh, 2024, we're going to be doing a live shiur uh, in uh, South Florida. We haven't uh, finalized the uh, details on the uh, venue uh, because we don't know exactly how many people are going to be coming. Anyone that is planning on coming, uh, you could send a uh, RSVP as soon as possible so we can know what kind of venue to get. Uh, I don't want it to be too small or too big. Uh, send it to events at bhtorah.org, events at bhtorah.org. Let me know uh, your name and how many people are coming with you. Uh, and uh, it's going to be here in South Florida, Be'ezot Hashem, on January 10th. So with that being said, we're uh, going to uh, go back to our long overdue uh, series of Jewish Ashkafa. And we are in the fifth chapter. We got to the third section of the fifth chapter. But to, uh, to give you guys a little bit of a reminder, a little reminder, you know, tonight's year is going to be talking about an expansion of what we already started, which is the non-logical thinking versus the intellect, meaning the imagination, creativity versus the intellect, actual knowledge. And uh, the, uh, of course, the Chazonis has taught us that uh, there's a constant debate between the, uh, those that have a great imagination uh, and uh, creativity from uh, our current generation uh, and compare themselves to the great sages that actually had real wisdom, wisdom of the Torah. Well, one end, the uh, generation is saying that, uh, look, we call a kavod to all of the great uh, insights from the Torah and the things that you guys have done and all the things you've taught, but if you look at how the world has developed, especially in the last century, uh, it looks like we have better lives. Uh, we have uh, you know, cars that drive by themselves, uh, park by themselves, we have speed trains, you have planes that can take you from one uh, end of the world to the other end of the world in less than a day. Uh, you obviously have a monetary system, uh, for better or for worse, that makes uh, anyone uh, capable of doing transactions uh, by with any country uh, he wants, with any uh, merchant that he wants to do uh, business with, and even more so, uh, you could do it uh, with a click of a button even, uh, without even actually ever going to the location like you had to in your time. So it looks like with all of these uh, things, uh, things have improved. The medical world seems like it's improved, where uh, even though certainly people lived a much longer lifetime at the time of Noah and, and, and beforehand, Still, after that, we see that most people 
lived uh, relatively shorter lives in some cases, and it looks like, again, this is what it looks like to the imaginary people, uh, to the, or the people that use their imagination, um, and uh, don't have necessarily much Torah knowledge, needless to say historical knowledge, uh, where they see, look, the medical world is more advanced, we can cure many more diseases, if you have a uh, problem with your eyes, then uh, you could simply get a uh, LASIK surgery and uh, you're, uh, you have better vision than 2020 vision. Uh, if you uh, have a, uh, some you know, cancer, uh, a few, uh, few treatments that destroy your entire body, and uh, you're, back to, uh, you know, you're back to square one, or at least theoretically speaking. They even, uh, you know, they even cure diseases the world has never heard of, or even invent ones. Uh, like we had in the last few years. Uh, so many inventions, many inventions that uh, this generation takes pride in, certainly social media uh, and uh, the, uh, the whole electronics and uh, computer uh, world has advanced. And uh, for, from that perspective, the generation feels like, uh, you know, it has a chip on its shoulder if it compares itself to uh, the older uh, generation, the ones from whether it's 100 years year, years ago or 500 years ago, uh, and needless to say, 1,000 or 2,000 years ago. It looks like, uh, you know, the older generation should bow its head to, wow, look at you guys, you guys are doing better than us. Again, this is the theoretical knowledge. Now, the truth is, as the Ramban, as the uh, Chazonish has taught us, that... Uh, this is obviously not quite uh, true uh, for, for many different reasons, but one of the things that he's mentioned in the first section of this chapter is that uh, while the later generations retort uh, saying that the earlier generations uh, were idlers and uh, have no contact with other nations, well, we do, uh, the, the truth is that the life uh, of the earlier generations... Uh, were very, very different, and in many cases, drastically better than uh, the life is today. Marriage used to actually mean something. Uh, you know, divorce was rare. Uh, modesty was standard among all nations, uh, as far as clothing is concerned. Uh, you know, in, in, as far as behavior, generally speaking, the uh, although immorality has always existed, it wasn't uh, a standard like it is today. A person did not have to worry about uh, his wife if she was late by an hour or two hours from some appointment, lest she be uh, committing adultery like they do today. Uh, you know, a, a woman did not have to worry about uh, our husband uh, fantasizing about uh, a woman that he just saw on the internet 20 seconds before he said, uh, you know, uh, I'm home, uh, you know, like people do today. So a lot of the issues that, uh, you know, we have today didn't necessarily exist back then. Life actually, uh, you know, was better in many regards. Uh, but again, at the same token, everything comes at a price. Everything comes at a price. And one of the things that the uh, Chazonish moves on into, moves on into now, is really the culmination of this particular section, which is comparing the inventions to the innovations. 
And there's quite a bit of a difference between the two. And then we take that into the world of chidushim, new insights, the thing that every person that learns Torah uh, wants to have and in many cases thinks they have. I can't tell you how many times people tell me that they have a chidush. Uh, and uh, in, uh, you know, in many cases, uh, the chidush is, uh, you know, is, uh, is interesting, and, uh, but uh, it's not really a chidush. Uh, if the person would have learned enough, they would have seen that you know, one of the other sages has already said it. Uh, but uh, there are many times where people bring a chidush, and it's not only not a chidush, it's a, uh, something you should run away from. And we'll discuss that in Bezat uh, Hashem. Because again, it's, a, uh, it's important for a person to understand what is a chidush, and what does that have to do with the two generations. So as we're going to continue Bezat Hashem, we're going to see what the uh, Chazunish has to tell us. And he starts as follows. Besides, it is a na- it's natural for human beings not only to invent many things, but to forget much as well. We have no idea how much has been forgotten. As Shlomo HaMelech said in Kohelet, in uh, the Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, it can happen that they will say something. Look, it's new, but it has already existed in the past. There is no memory of former generations nor of the future ones that are to follow among those that will come after them. We know that of wisdom of the Egyptians, whose mummies have remained intact until present times, and the scientists of the past few generations have not been able to unravel their secret. It's said in the Torah of the embalming of Yaakov Avinu in the book of Genesis, chapter 50, verse 3. We're going to get to that in a couple of weeks. Where 40 days pass, for such is the time of the embalmed. Where the Egyptians, after Yaakov Avinu died, he, uh, they embalmed him and they had a way to preserve his body as if uh, he was still living. Without being worried about the, uh, the maggots and the worms that... Uh, uh, simply, you know, destroy the body after a person dies, after the soul leaves it. We see that this is not something that's available in the world today. We see from this that it was a lengthy process involving a complicated procedure and necessitating various chemical substances to be used in turn. And in Africa and in Rome, one also sees beautiful buildings, evidence of hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See here, the Chazunish is in essence trying to build a platform here and a foundational knowledge to let us know that while the current generation is very proud of its innovations or what they view as inventions, whether it be the uh, self-driving cars or the GPS system or now in the last year, the uh, artificial intelligence and they, you know, these are all considered uh, inventions in people's, uh, you know, in people's mind, as if it came from nothing. But the reality is that these are not quite inventions, but rather innovations. And in fact, if you, before we go into the comparison of inventions versus innovations, the Chazanisha is telling us that you're assuming that what we have today was not available in the past. 
and thereby also assuming that the past didn't have things that we don't have today. And there lies the problem. Assumptions based on ignorance are typically wrong assumptions. And the Chazonish tries to bring a few different examples. First, he starts off with the wisest man of all, Shlomo HaMelech, who says that this is going to happen. This is going to happen where people will say one day, look, this is new. I've invented something new that never existed before. But the truth is, Shlomo HaMelech says that it already has existed. It's already been here in the past generations before you. But you just don't have a record of it. And just because there's no record of something doesn't mean it didn't happen. It's like the old saying in English where if a tree falls in a forest and no one, there, no one is there to, to hear it, does it still make a sound? Of course it makes a sound. The fact that you weren't there to witnesses doesn't change that. And this is one of the problems that you have in the world today that's ignorant of Torah and proper ashkafa, proper ideology, where people really truly believe that the world revolves around them. That if they are not somewhere, then certainly it didn't happen. If they didn't hear of something, then certainly it doesn't exist. The best thing is when somebody first comes to one of our shiurei Torah, and, uh, you know, they're listening for a few minutes, and all of a sudden, you know, you see their face change. Like, like something's on my head. And you keep talking and talking, and once in a while, they have the curse, say, I never heard of that before. So what? You didn't hear about it. What are you, all-knowing? Just because you didn't hear it means that what I'm saying is wrong? This comes from arrogance. This comes from an assumption that you already possess all of the information there is to know. And unfortunately, this is a trap that you've set yourself. And without humbling yourself, you'll never become anything in anything. One of the things that a person needs to know is that the world is huge. It's a very, very big world. The, the old saying, it's a small world, is just a figure of speech. It's not true. The world is huge. The opportunities are enormous. Whether it's opportunities to gain knowledge, expertise, make money, or anything else out there. Literally, it's an endless world from the human perspective. But anytime a person thinks that it's a small world and that their knowledge is, in so many words, complete... This is a person that is choosing to minimize their world, minimize their perspective, minimize their expertise, but also cancel out anything that's opposite to what they already exist, which makes it a very, very difficult life. Now, the Ben Ishchai commented on the, this whole question about Shlomo HaMelech being the wisest man of all. Somebody asked me just uh, last night, I heard in your lecture that everything is in the Torah. What do you mean by everything is in the Torah? Does that mean that certain mathematical theories 
are actually in the Torah? Or is it really more like a figure of speech? And I said, the answer is, everything literally means everything, even more than what you've actually used as an example. Not just are all mathematical theories in there, and all inventions are in the Torah, and all of the things that have happened in the last hundred years in there, in the last thousand years are in there, even though the Torah was only given to us 3,334 years ago and originally written 974 generations before the world came into being, whereas the Gemara in Masechet Chagigah says that HaKadosh Baruch Hu wrote the Torah with black fire on white fire, and he used that Torah as the blueprint for the world that he was creating. He saw that his Torah has kosher, fish, kosher animals, and that's where the rules, and therefore he created those animals. Kosher laws required kosher animals. Kosher laws required non-kosher animals. His Torah had purity and impurity, tahor and tameh in Hebrew, and thereby he created the different ways to become impure and the fewer ways to become purified, especially at the time of the Bet HaMikdash, but also as it pertains to a woman that's married to a husband that has to go through the menstrual cycle that is specifically within her body in order to allow her to become purified after the cycle is over once she actually goes through the family purity process in Judaism which is going into a mikveh after counting the appropriate amount of days. This is not only for the sake of fulfilling that particular law within Hashem's Torah but also in order for his nation, his people to to have longevity in their marriage and excitement in their marriage as if they just got married today each month so all of these different things are in the torah furthermore there's all types of different laws for example like the obligation that the jews have to fulfill the covenant of a brit milah having a circumcision on the eighth day and therefore who created man that's born with a foreskin that has to be cut off on the eighth day if as long as the baby is healthy so the human form took was structured in such a pattern that it is able to fulfill this Torah obligation. And all of the laws that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has in his Torah were looked at first before man was created, before the world was created, meaning that the Torah is the blueprint for the world, not the world uses the Torah as simply a uh, uh, just an instruction set of how to live. It's even more so. It's the manual of how to create the world as well as how to have the world fulfill its purpose. So this is not only everything that has existed, that needs to exist, but furthermore, Everything that will ever exist is also in the Torah. As I told the young man that even this conversation on text message, on WhatsApp that you and I are having right now 
is also in the Torah. Meaning, all of the instructions of how to create the world, all of the different details of what the world will look like, all of the different inventions, theories, ideas, and even all of the small details like this conversation or this shiur that we're having. All of that is in the Torah. You just need to know how to find it. And anyone that has searched and searched and searched enough and knows how to search has found endless amount of secrets that literally are impossible to believe until you see them or until you learn to learn. You realize that literally everything is in it. So the Ben Ishchai in his sefer called Imre Bina, he asked a question about Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon. If he was the wisest man of all time, he got a special gift from God, as we see in the Torah where he, in his 13th birthday, he, uh, God, in essence, told him, what gift do you want, my son, and I'll give it to you. Do you want wealth? Do you want power? And Shlomo HaMelech says, no, I want wisdom so I can judge your nation properly. And because he chose that, God was so happy with his decision, this young man's decision, he said, I'm not only going to give you the wisdom that you requested, but I'm going to give you wisdom unlike any other man that lives. A divine wisdom. A wisdom that's unlike anybody else. The Gemara says in multiple places that it's only challenged by the wisdom of Moshe Rabbeinu, Avraham Avinu, and of course, the Creator. But everyone else, even Yosef HaTzadik, that's mentioned in our Torah in the last couple of weeks that we've been learning about him, where the, day, the night before he met with Paro, an angel came down and taught him 70 languages. 70 languages in a single day. Obviously, this is a special person. And why did he need to know 70 languages? Because the tradition in Egypt at the time of how they chose a king was based on who knows the most amount of languages. As the Midrash Rabbah says, when Yosef HaTzadik showed his brilliance in the dream and interpreting the dreams, Paro wanted to test him, test his knowledge. So he spoke to him in a certain language, and if Yosef understood the language, he would respond to him in the same language. And if he responded in the same language correctly, he would go up a step. There were 70 steps. Paro himself was very wise. So he spoke a second language. Yosef responded in a second language. Thereby took a second step. Paul th- spoke a third language. Yosef responded, taking a third step. And they continued four, five, six, seven, ten, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, sixty. And he got all the way to sixty-nine. Sixty-nine languages that Paro spoke to Yosef and Yosef responded. And then Paro was finished. He didn't know any more languages. But Yosef did. And he spoke one more language, which was the holy language of Hebrew, which Paro did not speak. And he was able to go up a 70th step. 
and Paro knew that if the Egyptians found this out, they would make Yosef the king, the Paro. And he made him swear not to say this to anybody. And Yosef agreed, and he became the viceroy. This would be very valuable later on when the time comes when the family of Yosef at Sadiq join Yosef, live there, and after 17 years of being there, Yaakov Avinu leaves this world, and it's time for Yosef to bury his father as he requested in Marat Machpelah, but Paro does not want Yosef to leave. And thereby Yosef uses this swear, this deal that they made 17 years prior, or actually more than that, almost 40 years prior, saying, listen, if, I, if you don't want me to go, that's not a problem. The only problem is that my father made me swear that I'm going to bury him in this cave of Machpelah. And I don't have a problem. I can break that swear if that's what Paro wants. But that means I have to break all of my swears, all of my vows. And of course, Paro knew what that meant. And therefore, he told him, go, go and take the chariots and take uh, everything with you and come back soon. So even this wisdom that Yosef had was inferior in comparison to Shlomo Melech. Not to minimize it, as obviously I just explained, but the point is that this is to show the breadth of knowledge that Shlomo Melech had is beyond human comprehension, and a person can get a tidbit of how much wisdom he had by looking at the Targum Sheni, which is the beginning of Megillat Estel, commentary on Megillat Estel in the beginning when they talk about the, before the story of Esther and Mordechai start, when they talk about the whole Achashverosh and Persia and the background story is that Achashverosh wanted to take the throne of Shlomo HaMelech, Kiseh Shlomo. And no one was able to do it because of how this throne was built in such a fashion. It was connected. It was one throne connected to 70. It was literally a huge, huge thing, not just in size, but also the mechanisms. So much so that he decided to make the throne also the place that he's going to settle, which was Shushan, and that's why they chose Shushan. Even though Shushan was not the capital, it became the capital. Why? Because that's where this throne was. What's so special about the throne? The Targum Sheni talks about Kiseh Shlomo, the throne of Shlomo, of all the different technology that it had, technology that, in fact, is beyond the capability of today. As I've mentioned to you guys before, where it had different animals these in its every step but these animals weren't just statues they moved they also were able to hear speech and determine whether the person said the right words in order to allow him to go up a step there was a flying uh, golden uh, dove 
all types of extraordinary things as I've mentioned in previous lectures. And this wisdom was the part of the wisdom of Shlomo. He made this chair, made this throne. So the Ben Ishchai in his Sefer Imre Bina, in the book Imre Bina, he asks this, uh, this question. Did Shlomo HaMelech know how to build trains and all other modern technology that we have at the time of the Ben Ishchai? Or did he not know? If he knew, why didn't he have trains during his day? Why didn't he have Tesla cars? Why didn't he have cell phones? Why didn't he have computers and the World Wide Web? If he didn't know, then how do you call him the wisest man of all? So the Ben Ishchai says he knew and he used much of the things that we don't think he had, but he also knew enough to not mass produce things and make it widely available like the capitalistic system that we have today because he knew that the outcome of many of these things was more negative than positive. And from that, we go back to what the Chazonish says, where he says that Shlomo Melech clearly stated that while people think that there's going to be something new, they don't realize that it actually has existed. And the only problem is that there's no record of it or you don't have knowledge of it. But that doesn't mean it didn't exist. And some of the proofs that the Chazonish brings that there was actually superior knowledge in previous generations is that we look at clearly the Torah itself. It says, look at the wisdom of the Egyptians. They were able to preserve a body and mummify it, which is not something that we're capable of doing today. This was not witchcraft. This was made with, with chemicals. Now you have labs all over the world, but nobody can do it. No one can mummify anything. They can try, but if they were able to succeed, they would have already done it many, many times over. We see that this existed. We also see that there are other things that the Torah mentions. All of these extraordinary buildings that if you look at all of the advanced technology we have in the world today, does not know how it was possible to build the Bet HaMikdash. Even though the Bet HaMikdash was destroyed, we have the Kotel, which was in essence the smallest part of it. But yet the Kotel, anyone that wants to go there can go there freely, can go even to the caves under the Kotel and see enormous stones that no crane in the world can lift. But yet these stones are all over the Kotel. How did they get them there? These were not stones that were there and they happened to build the whole Bet HaMikdash around them. 
These were stones that were moved from place to place, lifted in the same fashion that people lift all types of heavy other things, but less heavy than these stones. How did they lift these enormous stones? Stones that are 40 feet long, weighing tens of tons, something that people that have seen it and that are familiar with the field of construction and archaeology and all of these different things that are in physics, they say, we have no idea how they built this. We have no idea how they put the stone here. The cave, one of the caves, are freestanding stones. There's no cement, but they're held together with perfect pressure. How do they do this? They could say, yeah, no, but they could do something similar to that, not in the same fashion. The different things that we've been able to see that are still around are superior to the, all of the technologies available today. And again, remember, people are saying there wasn't technology. They didn't have cranes back then like we have today. They didn't have the computer systems like we have today. They didn't have all of the stuff that we have today. But yet, they were able to do things that are beyond the capabilities of today. Same thing goes with the different structures in Egypt that the Jewish people built. The pyramids, the sphinx, all of these extraordinary structures. The, the building of these structures is so superior to anything that's available in the world today that there are literally endless conspiracies about how there are aliens that built them because they simply cannot comprehend how the Jewish people built them. How these so-called slaves built them. How do they put these stones, in these enormous stones, how do, they, how do they move them? How do they lift them? How do they make them so symmetrical, perfect? This cannot be human-made, according to the conspiracy theories that are ignorant of Torah. They literally say that aliens must have built them. It's not possible that people built this because they assume that if it's not possible today with the technology that we have today with the computers and the software and the engineers and the terrorist uh, uh, or, I mean the uh, colleges and universities well not, not, it's really terrorist organization you know backers they can't do it so how could these slaves from 3,000 years ago do it? And we see more things in different parts of the world, construction sites, monuments, different buildings, treasures, statues, all types of things that even if you got a million people together like they do in China they still would not be able to build it showing clearly that the past generations were not the stone age like people think they were not the stone age like people think in fact it's quite the opposite there are certain technologies and certain abilities that the past generations have that are superior to the ones that we have today. 
anyone that saw my film, Torah, Science, and Ancient Wisdom, sees that there are actually certain things that are superior to what we have today in the medical world as well. The Gemara in Maseret Bava Metzia has a liposuction operation made on Rabbi Lazar ben Rabbi Shimon, where they remove several buckets of fat from his body because it was a very big man. He did it for spiritual reasons, which the Gemara elaborates on, to see if his flesh is eaten by maggots and worms and the flies go there, or he has sanctified his body so much that he could leave it out there in the sun and nothing would happen to it, which was actually what happened. But the operation is mentioned in the and clarified. Even to the, to the small details like what kind of table they used, which was granite, tools. Another time the Gemara mentions about how one of the sages was suffering problems with his eyes. And one of the other sages said that he had a cure for it. It is a very strong paste that he makes from different chemicals. And if he puts it on, it'll cure his vision, meaning he'll bring his vision to perfection. He'll see 2020. He won't have to wear any glasses or any problem with his eyes again. But he was concerned to lose more. He says, okay, so you could put it above something else, cover your eyes. He says, no, I'm still concerned. There's no problem. You know what? It's strong enough that even if you put it at the back of your head, it'll still cure your eyes. And that he agreed, and that's actually what happened. He put the paste on the back of his head, and it gave him 20-20 vision, perfect vision. In fact, it was better than 20-20 because the Gemara says that if a uh, person wants to know where his share of the land ends versus another, he has to know how far he can see his sheep if he's a shepherd and it gives details of how far the average person was able to see which was 10 miles with the naked eye today no human being can see even one mile with the naked eye meaning that vision was superior back then the physical abilities were superior back then and this is less than 2,000 years ago but also there was medicinal uh, there was medicine that was superior to anything that we have today imagine One of the Jewish sages comes to us and says, look, here's this little paste. It'll turn everybody's vision to vision that is unbeknownst to man today. You're able to see 10 miles ahead of you. You can read perfectly. In so many words, your eyes turn into something supernatural. All of the eyeglasses companies go bankrupt. And the world changes forever from this little paste that this old man came up with but it already existed for a couple of thousand years. So, the first part that we're seeing from the Chazonish that lays the foundation is that don't assume anything, especially don't assume that you're so much more superior or superior at all. Today, because of the recent inventions because the older generation also was superior in certain aspects furthermore 
The Chazonish goes even to the next step and says, the wisdom of the later generations, meaning now, is based on that of the former ones who discovered the carbon dioxide and the oxygen in the air and the uses of their separation from each other studied ores found in the depth of the earth gold silver iron and the methods of their extraction on the basis of the development of this wisdom the later generations conducted many experiments much to the glory should go much of the glory should go to the ones who first opened the doors of wisdom they were not handed the keys by the previous generations but rather used their hearts and their great talents to unlock those gates of knowledge the later generations in contrast entered gates that were already open moreover most of these new innovations new inventions were invented following experiments conducted by ordinary people possessing energy and a talent for experimenting without their having acquired wisdom in the institutions of higher learning like colleges of their times see here the chazonish takes it to another level of clarifications to put things in the right perspective instead of being so proud of the teslas and the chat gpts and the other softwares and hardwares that are available today know where you stand number one as he's already stated many things existed in the past that are superior to today furthermore even the things that were invented today were not really invented but rather innovated because all of the things that are brought to the world and produced are relying on the previous generations those same ones that discovered even the existence of carbon dioxide and how to separate them how to separate the different chemicals that are in the world whether it be precious metals or other types of chemicals these were people that really started things these were people that the credit is really belongs to because had it not been for them none of this stuff today would exist their wisdom their knowledge their expertise is something that a person should really give credit to even though you're benefiting from a technology of today and not necessarily from the things of yesterday but a person needs to acknowledge the fact that today would not exist without yesterday so some of the examples that uh, a person looks at as far as what this generation finds takes pride in is communication the ease of communication 
the extent of communication of how expensive it is, whether it be social media, phones, text messaging, videos, all of these different things. But the truth is that very few people today, especially the newer generation that's you know been born since, let's say, the 1990s, and especially in the 2000s, very few people even know who are the pioneers of the internet. People like Bob Kahn and Vint Cerf that were on a government project and together created the TCPIP protocols of the internet. After that, there was Tim Berners who created the World Wide Web and Mark Andreessen was an extraordinary investor today in technology, but was a inventor in the late 1980s, 1990s, launching the first browser, internet browser called Mosaic. These pioneers are the reason why you have things like ChatGPT, Google, Twitter, or X it's called now, and Facebook, TikTok. None of these things would exist without this technology coming to the world over the last several decades, all of which began with a government project in the United States in order to try to create a system that would allow them to communicate if there was a nuclear war. The government projects that eventually went to the world, where in the 1980s, they started getting, giving the ability for people to use it. No one thought it was going to be as big as it is now, but they gave people the ability to see things without necessarily having to go to places, communicate without necessarily having to use the same technology that's been available for, let's say, the last hundred years before that, whether it be the uh, uh, um, telephone or uh, different types of uh, uh, letters and so on. The first email that was ever sent crashed just because the author wrote a second letter, which was O. System crashed, but the second email succeeded. A government project saw life, but then it was innovated by different people and expanded upon in every single generation that followed it. Every generation relies on this foundation. In fact, the same technology of the HTTP and the email system that was originally created is still utilized today. That hasn't been innovated. It's actually still in existence now. In fact, there are technologies that were available a hundred years ago, but are not available today, which proves our example of what we mentioned about technology of Shlomo Amelech and other 
extraordinary people in their times. Everyone is familiar with the Tesla car. It's become perhaps one of the most famous cars out there. Not sure if it's profitable yet or not, but certainly it is popular. Now, this is named after a very famous inventor and engineer, an extraordinary person named Nikola Tesla. This Nikola Tesla had his hand in many different major inventions, whether it be electric or we the uh, electric boats, telephony, lighting, induction motor. He invented many extraordinary things. But one of the things that struck me was that he actually had wireless lighting already available a hundred years ago, which we don't have today. Meaning he had a system of lighting that we don't have today. So when a person sees that something like that, they can now understand a little bit more and then the, perhaps the doubt or skepticism they had about what I said that was available a few thousand years ago becomes more of a reality and easier to accept because, wait a minute, if someone had technology that was a superior than what we have today a hundred years ago it was just never marketed it was never popularized it was never developed and innovated further at least not yet and that was just a hundred years ago now things start to make sense the things that we see today are things that the current generation chose from the past to innovate upon the LLM models or the chat GPT. These are things that have been available for some time. In fact, I actually know of a, uh, I met one of my uh, new friends that's part of our Kehila in Eretz Yisrael. He actually had uh, artificial intelligence that uh, is he's utilizing now to have this into a camera system and different types of sensors in order to supervise the sofrim Torah scroll, that are writing Torah scrolls or mezuzahs or, or a uh, tefillin and to make sure that they're following all of the detailed laws because anytime there's a uh, mistake made not just in the writing itself but even in the behavior somebody has a phone ringing or he's listening to music or anything like that that's not allowed while you're writing a Torah scroll or a tefillin or something like that the system the system reacts and he has to leave the room he's warned he has to leave the room there's a supervision this is all done to artificial intelligence that was already available something like seven or eight years ago well before chat GPT even was a uh, uh, something in the news. Now he's trying to build upon this. It's still very expensive. But the point being is, is that many of the things that we see today are there because someone chose to innovate something that already existed. 
And after innovating it enough times, finding somebody that's able to market it and bring it to market in order to produce it in large numbers and make money out of it. This doesn't mean that everything we have today is the best that's available. It just means that this is, out of all the choices that are available, this is what was marketed the best. There's certainly things that are out there that are superior than what we have right now. They simply haven't been marketed yet. I know that there's one guy that was one of the original, I think, six or seven employees of Apple that recently came out with a product that he's trying to innovate the whole communications world of how, you know, not needing a phone anymore and having a little gadget that you could simply, uh, it projects information and it does a lot of the different things that phones do and much more. Whether this ends up being uh, popular or not and succeeding or not remains to be seen. But the point is that this is technology that is certainly new to the world now, but it has existed and it's relying on things that preceded it. And the one that's preceding it is relying on something that's preceding it. Furthermore, we see that even all of this is also mentioned in our Holy Torah. In the book of Genesis, in chapter 4, when it talks about the family of Cain, the Torah tells us about some of the things that the family of Cain will forever be known for. In fact, we still benefit from. In chapter 4, verse number 20, talks about how Lamech, who had two wives, one of which was a woman named Ada. And this Ada had a son named Jabal. Which uh, in, uh, in Hebrew, in, uh, Hebrew, it's uh, Yaval. Now this Jabal was the first of those who dwell in tents and breed cattle. What does it mean, dwell in tents and breed cattle? Obviously we know that the uh, Evel, Abel, was also a shepherd. So he wasn't the first shepherd, and it doesn't say he was the first shepherd. But rather he was the one that was able to breed cattle, meaning he was able, he innovated in the world of breeding. And furthermore, the, uh, his brother, Jubal, Yuval, was the first who handled the harp and the flute. Music, instruments came to the world through the sons of Cain. The harp and the flute are still utilized today. But they're mentioned in the Torah literally within a few pages of creation. Now, Lamech's other wife, Zila, she also had a brilliant son named Tubal-Kain. And this Tubal-Kain 
was the one that sharpened all the cutting implements of the copper and iron. He had special skill set. In essence, he's the one that brought weapons to the world. All the different weapons that you see today started here. Later on, we see from the sons of Esav also made different types of breeding that's not allowed, but nonetheless, he, uh, they, they also brought certain things to the world. And the point is that if you look at the Torah itself, you'll find that everything that we have today, whether it's weaponry, steel products, precious metals, medical equipment, music, farming, all of it comes from the Torah, from people that most people never don't even know existed, from people that are not listed in history books. They don't have a Wikipedia page, but rather they have a verse in the Torah that will outlast any Wikipedia page and will be available for eternity. And all of what we have today, whether it be music or steel or internet or electric, all of the wireless and the wire, uh, all of these different things that we have in the world today, they're simply innovations, not true inventions. This is, does not mean that they're less valuable it just means that the current generation should never view themselves as superior to the previous generation because of the material things that they have in the world today because even there you're still relying on the previous generation and in fact even there there are certain parts that are inferior today that are in the past things that are not available today now this is good information but it's not the point the point is how does this interpret into the Torah mindset many times when people learn Torah if they don't have a rabbi or worse yet, they have a bad rabbi, then arrogance quickly seeps in and can easily take over their mind and turn what they believe is good and turn it into bad. How so? They start learning and they decide at some point that they know better than the sages that preceded them, the Chachamim, that have learned more than them. They decide that they are smarter. Or perhaps they know something or they figured out something that the previous sages in our tradition, in our history, didn't know. They brought a chidush. Now chidushim are very important. But a person first needs to know what a chidush is. The arrogant person thinks or I should say, not even the arrogant, but simply the ignorant. 
that by default is more times than not arrogant, thinks that a chidush is a new insight that never existed before. Something the world of Torah has never seen before. It is an invention. But if you ask the great sages, whether it be Rav Yashiv, Rabbi Chaim Ivolozhin, or the Chazonish, they all made the same statement. Do you know what a chidush is? A chidush is an understanding of what the sages said. That's a chidush. Well, what do you mean? How is it a chidush? How is it a new insight? If it already exists. Simple. You understand what they said in a way that at your level of intellect can understand it, a clarification that does not contradict what our sages have said, that's a new insight. Now you may be able now that you understand the basic to also extrapolate from this understanding. You understand that this is not just a piece of brown material. You understand that this is a tree. Now that you know that this is a tree, you could also get fruits from this tree. It's still part of the tree. And those that knew this was a tree the whole time also had those fruits. But you have now finally become aware of that. Years ago, Rabbi Masud Abu Khatsira, the father of the Baba Sali, was learning Torah and he got in front of an extraordinary, complicated sugya. And he was studying it day and night to try to understand this complicated part of the Torah. And after a week, he finally realized, he finally understood, he finally extrapolated what he needed from it to understand this complicated Torah teaching. It was so extraordinary that he decided to have a sauda, a feast. At the feast, he invited the different chachamim, young and old. And when one of the, when the people came, one of the youngsters that didn't really have the reputation of being a big Torah scholar or anything special, asked what is the topic at hand here? And Rav Masud Abu Chatzira said the first part of the sugya, and without much effort, this young scholar quickly arrived at the conclusion. This weakened Weakened the rough. Oh, how, 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 did he, how did he know this? I worked on this for a week. And he just, just like that, got it. This weakened him. And he went to the Saba Kadisha, the, the, his father, Rabbi Yaakov Abu Chatzira, 
And he said, no, without any arrogance or anything, I just want to know how is it possible that this young man that's not really known as a big Torah scholar yet or anything, how did he figure out so quickly what I've been toiling on day and night for a week? He's either a hidden genius that no one knows, or I'm really just fool, a fool. And I, I, I think that I know something, but I'm really a fool. Rabbi Yaakov Abu Chatzira taught him a very valuable lesson that is relevant today as it is back then. He says, you have to understand. The Zohar Kadosh tells us that every Jew has a letter in the Torah. This doesn't only mean that there's literally a letter designated for you, but this also means that there is in Shemaim, in heaven, a Kadosh Baruch designates certain Torah insights. Certain Torah insights to every Jew. It's going to learn Torah that you can bring to the world and no one else can. If you toil in Torah, you can discover things that weren't clarified until you came. This is not new information. This is extrapolating from what exists. But only you can do it in the way that you can do it. And in order to do that, you have to toil and toil in order to remove these insights, these chidushim from the klipa. The klipa has them hostages. Now once you actually toil enough and break your back enough for HaKadosh Baruch Hu to give you this insight, now that you've freed it and you've brought it to the world, it's now available for all. So you freed it from the klipa. Now that you've freed it from the klipa, certainly you ask people and they're going to know it all of a sudden. Before that, if you would have asked them, no one would have even known what you're talking about. So don't worry, my son. You still are the ones responsible for this particular chidush. What is it like? Our dear Rav, Rav Ephraim, gives a very simple example. It says many people, you know, watch these different shows, these cooking shows, and it's impressive. You see how this guy makes these candies from coconuts and makes it look so delicious, and he puts all these colors on it. But the truth is, this guy wouldn't be able to do anything if someone didn't decide one day, you know what? That tree, 20, 30, 40 feet in the air, those big balls over there, I'm going to go climb that tree and get that coconut. And after he climbs that tree and he finds a way to climb it without breaking his back, he gets that coconut, but in reality, the first time you see this coconut, I mean, it's, it's a stone, even worse than stone, harder than stone. You have to figure out a way to break it without ruining it. And one of the things I learned from someone that took some coconuts from trees that we had is that you can't just decide to break it wherever way you want. You can't just take a hammer and just smash it. If you want to do it properly, you need to use a machete. The average person doesn't have a machete. 
And even if you do, do you know how to use the machete? I can tell you that if I use the machete, I don't think the coconut's going to have a problem. My arms are going to have a problem. Whatever's left of them. But the point is that this guy has to figure out to take out the coconut, bring the coconut down, find the tools that are most appropriate to open up this coconut and still leave the coconut inside. And then once you have this coconut and it's peeled and it's served and it's available for your taking, surely this other guy can take a few ingredients, put them on these little pieces of coconuts that he designs in a nice little cute way, and say, oh, here you go, the candy. Don't worry, my son. You're still responsible for this chidush. Had you not taken down the coconut and figured out a way to open up this coconut without destroying the coconut, this guy that's on TV that's making little candies from that coconut, he wouldn't even have the idea. He wouldn't have the idea to even make something out of these coconuts because he wouldn't know whether they exist or not. The same concept is when it comes to Torah insights, Chidushim. If it wasn't for the previous sages that brought down certain things, none of the insights that we have today would even exist. Now furthermore, a person must know that this is not just a recommendation, a suggestion, an idea. This is our tradition. Now, a person that's not familiar with Torah, or at least not familiar enough, could easily jump to the conclusion that he is human, and so are the rabbis. He puts his pants on one leg at a time, and so does his rabbi. And once he gets to that conclusion that he is not very different than his rabbi, he's human, he's human. Even though the rabbi <clears throat> perhaps has learned for more years than him, he assumes that he can learn everything that the rabbi has said because he's watched all of his shiurim. He attended the shiurim and he watched a hundred of them. And he watched a thousand of them. And if he watched a thousand of his shurim, surely he knows whatever the rabbi knows because that's what he taught. And if he arrives at that conclusion, he can quickly get to the point of saying, wait, if I already, in just a short period of time, acquired so much Torah knowledge that I watched two, three, four, six hours, ten hours a day of shurim from the rabbi, what took him Ten years to make, I learned in a matter of six months, I'm ahead of the rabbi. He took him ten years to do it. I already learned everything he said in six months. So, wherever I am, I'm probably at the same level or ahead of the rabbi. And even if I'm behind, I'm not far behind. Because again, look at how fast I learned what he taught in ten years. And once he arrives at that conclusion, he's only a stone throw away from starting to do the same thing with some of the sources that the rabbi brings in the shurim. He says, oh, you know, that Rabbi Ovadia said such and such. And Rabbi Yashiv says such and such. 
and the Rambam says such and such. And the person says, you know what, I'm going to open up the Rambam, and I'll open up the Rav Ovadia, I'm going to open up the different books, and I'm going to read it, and wait, hold on a second. I understand what they're saying, and they are also people just like me, that put on their pants one leg at a time, that have to use the bathroom, that have to eat, that have to drink. So, if I'm able to read a few of their pages in just a 10 minutes, 20 minutes, a half hour, this book took the, the Rav 20 years to write. If I already read 10% of it in just one day, I'm not far behind this Rav. I may even be ahead. And if they arrive at that conclusion very quickly they're going to arrive at a similar conclusion of the sages even in the Gemara and see if I could read what this Rav has to say in the Gemara here and only takes me eight minutes to complete a Daf Gemara certainly this Rav taught this and this is his wisdom and this is what he says and I understand it so why can't I disagree with it? Why can't I just do what his colleagues are doing? Look, Abaya said this, and Rava disagrees. Resh Lakish says this, and Rabbi Yochanan disagrees. Rabbi Shimon says this, and Rabbi Uda disagrees. Rabbi Udanasi says this, and Rabbi Meir disagrees. So what's the difference if one of them says something, and I disagree? I don't agree that this is the truth. I don't think that you have the same wealth of information available to me in the year 2024, back then, 2,000 years ago. And there lies the road to Gehenom as a person lays it out for themselves by simply assuming through their own manipulated calculations that was already flawed and wrong from the first one being his rabbi that has quickly advanced from one to another where he decides that he can look at the Gemara and understand the Gemara the way he understands it and thereby paskin alacha from his understanding, bring a chidush from his understanding, conclude what the law is from his understanding. And that's how Rabotai Heretics are born. Alacha cannot be paskin based on your understanding of the Gemara. In fact, almost everything cannot depend on your understanding when it comes to the Torah. It all requires 
the understanding of the sages that preceded you, those that have toiled for much longer than you, those that have sacrificed much more than you, and guess what? Those that are much more brilliant than you can ever be, even if you continued in the same pace as what you think you're doing now. Now, this is not just applicable to you. This is applicable even to geniuses that preceded you. One of the examples is the Rogachova Gaon. The Rogachova Gaon mentioned several stories about him in the past. He was a genius unlike any other in his generation. Some even say that he was a Nazil, where he would not get a haircut. They asked him once why. He said it hurts. He was a very unique person. He would speak in sources. And if you weren't learned enough, you simply would not be able to understand what he's talking about. This is the same way that he wrote, where he and his great, extraordinary genius did something that wasn't acceptable among the sages, which is that he would paskin an alacha based on the Gemara and the Rambam. And that's all he would use. And therefore, Rav Vadya Yosef, Allah Shalom, in Yechaveh Dat, in the issue of how to paskin alacha, when they talk about it, Ravadiyah says that as great and as an extraordinary gaon, genius, as the Rogachover gaon was, the sages concluded that you cannot rely on him to know what the alacha is. Why? Wasn't that he didn't know what he's talking about, he was a genius. Wasn't that he was always wrong. Absolutely not. But rather because his system of paskining alacha went against the tradition of how we paskin alacha, which is that it cannot just simply depend on these, your understanding of the Gemara and the Rambam, but rather you have to go through different poskim, different sages, and see how they understood the Gemara. Not just how you understand the Gemara. How they understood the Rambam. Not just how you understood the Rambam. How other Rishonim paskind at the time of the Rambam before and after him. And not just the Rambam. Meaning that you can't just conclude things that way. We have to go through a systematic analysis of the different sages that discuss this topic and not just rely on two points of knowledge, even though it's the source of knowledge, it's truth, it's emet, it's kodesh kodeshim, still the tradition is that we have to analyze anyone that's a posek, anyone that wants to know the truth, anyone that wants to analyze something cannot just look at these two points and conclude this is the ultimate truth, everything else is null and void. No, you have to look at what other sages have said. 
Even if you conclude still what the Rambam said, you still have to analyze the others and understand why the Rambam is what he says and that's the conclusion of truth and not something else. Or why the Rambam is not what we paskin today and why we paskin like someone else. Either way, there has to be a systematic is a, the methodology. This is one of the things that truly showed the brilliance of Rav Ovadi Yosef when the Chachamim saw his Yabiya Omel, they simply did not understand how somebody in this generation has that type of knowledge where it wasn't, oh, he discovered A and thereby he concluded B. No. There is an issue at hand of A and he brought you hundreds and hundreds of sages some that were not even known to the average person and even other people that knew about him didn't have access to their work he brought everyone to discuss this topic every sage that lived in the last thousand years to discuss this particular topic and mentioned and decided based on the analysis of each and every single one of them. At one point, Ravadi Yosef had a, he was on a radio, and people would ask questions. Not like the questions that people ask me, simple questions of the basic fundamentals of how to act as a Jew on a day-to-day life, but extraordinary, sophisticated questions that came from big Tamidei Chachamim. And every time at the during the show, multiple times during the show, the the uh, uh, the person that was running the show would tell people, "Ladies and gentlemen, I just want to remind you, Ravadia does not know of these questions before you ask them, and does not have any books in front of him." And people would ask questions, and he would answer the questions. But not just saying yes or no because this sage said it. But rather go through an analysis. This is the question. This question was mentioned by this sage. He said such and such. Another sage that lived 800 years ago said this. In this book, on this line, on this page. And this is what he said. Another sage said this. In this book, at that page, at that line, and this year. And this is what he said. And he would literally give you the whole system. You asked the question, he gave you a whole map of all of the points of where in history, of where the Jewish sages asked this question that you have and what they said and where they said it. And he would give you the conclusion of what was concluded by the sages after evaluating all of these different opinions and analysis throughout the generations. And this was all live. Literally, one answer that somebody would ask could easily have a hundred or more sources with clarifications, with word for word speech telling you what it says there. 
the breadth of knowledge was unbelievable. They turned these into books. Some of the books by Rav Vadya came from this radio show. Yabia Omer was even more than that. Just so you understand, the first way I just mentioned is impressive as can be, Yabia Omer for Torah scholars is even more than that. Some of the sages at the time that were, didn't think that there were any great Sephardi scholars left in the world. And they thought that all of the scholarship was only in the Ashkenazi world. When they saw the Abiy Omil, literally, they couldn't believe that somebody like that lives today. When Ravadya says, this is what the law is, that's because every possibility that not only that you can think of or I can think of, but that everyone has thought of over the last couple thousand years is being taken into account. This is why even the great Gdolim in the Ashkenazi world, in the Sephardi world, in the Hasidish world, everyone knew Ravavadya. That's something unique. That's not something that you just simply say, oh no, I disagree with Ravavadya. It doesn't work that way. Why? Because he's not telling you, oh, I feel this way. This is my opinion. He's telling you, this is the conclusion after reviewing all of the great sages and seeing what they said and walking in their footsteps and following their tradition. Which means, Rabotai, that when he said that the Rogachover is not someone that you could rely on on Allah, is not his opinion. This is what was the opinion of all of the great sages that have lived in the last hundred years because, again, this is something that we have that's fundamental to the Jewish world. If you want to know what the truth is, it has to go through the tradition. If you have a chidush, a new insight that no one has ever heard of, no one has ever spoken of, you don't have a chidush. You have a problem. You have a mistake. When the Balanetivot, Rabbi Yaakov of Lisa, published one of his, his book, one of the young scholars read it and said, this is very good, but you know, some of the things that you wrote, you know, they were written elsewhere. And the Baal Netivot says, of course they were. Of course they were written elsewhere. Because if one goes on the right path, he will meet many friends. He'll meet many friends. But if he goes on the wrong path alone into the desert, he won't find anything there other than danger, other than sins. He'll only find himself alone. 
like the sinners are. I went on the right path. So that's why I found so many friends. And here, in this particular chidush, I, that chidush, I directed it towards the thought process of this sage. And this insight was in the line of that sage. And that insight was in the line of that sage. I went on the same straight path as my forefathers, and I found them on the way. That's how I know it's true. When a person thinks that they're supposed to innovate and bring something new to the world, to bring a new Torah, something that's never been discovered before, never spoken about before, this is the road to heresy, this is the road to the desert. This is not the road to kosher Torah. Unfortunately, the, the public that's unlearned doesn't know that. So when they hear, oh, this rabbi said something new no one has ever heard before. He's bringing a new aspect of Torah to the world. If he really is bringing new, as the Chazoni says, where he uses the Mishnah, Chadash Asu Mina Torah. New is forbidden according to the Torah. There is no new inventions in the Torah. There's only innovations. Lastly, there was a story that happened about 80 years ago. One of the Chachamim, the Evan Ezin, Rabbi Yisrael Zalman Meltzer. He was in a Bet Midrash and one of these young arrogant scholars came to him not even a Talmud Chacham he's just a, you know one of these young guys that doesn't necessarily want to follow the tradition wants to bring something new to the world and he has clever speech you know sometimes people look smart they sound smart but in reality if they speak to somebody smart they're Embarrassment is easily unveiled. In the business world, sometimes you'll see where people say, very, use very big words inappropriately. Why? Because, simply put, they want to sound smart, so they study the dictionary. Instead of reading books, instead of reading the important subjects, developing their mentality, developing their intellect, developing their thought process, they want a shortcut. So what do they do? They study the dictionary. They study big words. And they memorize them. And they use them in a common conversation. Or in an email or something. Write up. Somebody sees, whoa, that's a big word. What does that word even mean? Now, people don't like to show that they're ignorant of something. So they, you know, they nod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But immediately what they're thinking, wow, this guy's smart. He's using Words, I don't even know what they mean. This guy's a genius. Or, worse yet, another tactic of con men is that what they do is they learn a little bit about many different things. Now, they don't actually know any one particular subject completely. They don't have a 
complete idea at all. But if they speak to the general public, people that are not scholars, people that are not experts, they'll be able to hold conversations with all types of people and seem like they're the smartest guy in the room. Why? Because they speak about so many different variety of subjects. They're speaking to the, uh, you know, the, the guy that's a technology uh, uh, in the technology field. Oh yeah, you know about AI and about this eye and that eye, and people are overhearing it. And then over there, look at the construction. Oh, you're building the uh, structure. What is that? The one that's on the uh, in Midtown over there. Oh yeah, there's another structure around there. I think that the, you know, the archaeology of today in comparison to the 1970s, I think some things have changed. And they start mentioning things that people that are, you know, just looking from like, you know, from the backs. Whoa, how does he know about archaeology and about technology and about uh, construction in two conversations? Then they see somebody. Oh, whoa, this guy's in a nonprofit industry. Oh yeah, nonprofit. Oh yeah. Well, you know, I saw there was a study. There was a paper. It was a pretty big paper, but I got through it over a weekend, and it actually stated that uh, ninety-eight cents out of every dollar that goes into the nonprofit world actually does not get spent on the cause. That was very disappointing. I'm sure your organization is much better, but what do you think of that finding? And all of a sudden, wow, the guy is reacting. Oh, somebody's interested in my field. Eh, ooh, and now they're having a conversation. And next thing you know, he finds a professor. Oh, yeah. What do you think about what these uh, presidents of the uh, Ivy League uh, schools are saying? I mean, on one end, I understand where they're coming from because they want free speech and they want this. And he's able to hold a conversation with this about professors. And you know, in the medical world, they're underpaid in other countries. Whereas in comparison to the U.S., very high salaries. Perhaps that's causing the insurance industry to go up. And now he can hold you a conversation about the economics, about finances, about the stock market. And all of a sudden, this guy looks like literally a genius. Why? Because he can hold a conversation about everything. But that's all he can do. In reality, if he ever happens to build on that conversation more than just a few moments, any expert, any scholar, any knowledgeable person that would ask him a question beyond the very superficial information that he stated initially will quickly find that he not, not only does not know as much as he seems to know, but he actually knows less than what even the average person knows that's in the field. So how could such a person be? There are many people like that. They're called con men. They pretend to know, and they exude a certain type of arrogance that makes it seem like certainly they do know. And since the average person is not learned in more than one or two fields, when they hear somebody else bringing up a handful of more subjects in almost like a single uh, line of communications, it seems like this person is like out of the world genius. And people quickly assume that guy's a genius. This one's a genius. He knows everything. He knows this. But in reality, they're fools. They're just con men. This is something that unfortunately has been part of history. It's happening. It has happened. It will continue happening. There's even one 
such story that I'm not going to get into right now that's in the Jewish world from somebody like that. Perhaps we'll discuss it further later on when I arrive at uh, some more uh, conclusions and have some more details about it that are not necessary or relevant to our subject at hand. But the point being is, is that when a person comes into the world of Torah and they start exuding an enormous amount of confidence, you could conclude, not assume, but conclude, they're ignorant. But they mention this and they mention that. So what? The Torah is acquired through fear of heaven and humility. The Torah, as the Gemara says in Masechet Brachot, is symbolized by water that flows to the bottom at all times. Naturally, water flows to the bottom. It'll always go to the lowest point. The Torah is the water, and it goes to a person that does not hold himself very high, does not exude an enormous amount of confidence for his knowledge, but quite the opposite. The more knowledgeable somebody is, the more of a scholar they are, the more humble you will see in their personality, in their behavior. This does not mean that they allow the world to walk over them. This does not mean that they walk around like they're some loser that you could just simply spit on them. No. When it comes to knowledge, the more Torah they actually have, the more they realize that they're missing a lot more. People that are overly confident about their knowledge usually do not possess much, but they want the world to think they do. So when this young person came to the Eben Ezel, the, the uh, Eben Ezel, and said, I have a chidush. And this chidush really is something that changes the world of Torah. And the Rav has to hear it. And he brings him this chidush. And the Rav listens patiently until he arrives at the conclusion. And the Rav says to him, you know, your chidush, when we think about the Rashba of what he said, it brings what he said to question. And we look at the Ktsot Choshen and what he said, it brings what he said to question. And in regards to the other part of the Chidush, when we look at the Machane Ephraim and what he said, you bring a different question. So yours just puts all of them to rest and silences them all. This young man is smiling from ear to ear. I fixed the world of Torah is in his mind. And he walks away happily. The chip on his shoulder has turned into a brick. As soon as he left, the Talmidim of Dev and Aezid asked him, why didn't you rebuke him? You know, he, what he was saying was complete nonsense. And Rabbi Yisrael Zalman Menzel says, I did. Tell me, he said, 
No, you didn't rebuke him. You, you complimented him. He came here smiling. He thought, because I was rebuking him. What do you mean? Oh, you want to know how? He told me his chidush. I told him, look, the Rashba doesn't agree with you. The Ktsot Choshen doesn't agree with you. Machane Ephraim doesn't even think like you. None of them are in the direction that you're going. How can you possibly be right? All of the people that discussed what you're saying are in a completely different world. Different direction. How can you possibly be right? Perhaps he has such gaiva, such arrogance, that he understood what I said as if he is right over these great sages but that's something I can't fix because that's a gava that creates stupidity it turns a person into a fool even if you tell him the answer he simply won't doesn't have the tools to understand it because he thinks he's right already before you even stated a response anyone that can think that they're greater than the sages that preceded them clearly does not have the tools to learn even the basics of today. Now, it's important for a person to know that the most enjoyable part of learning Torah in the beginning is that everything is new. Everything is new. Everything is amazing. Everything is delicious. But as you continue going, you're going to run into the same ideas again. And perhaps the second time you run into that idea, you'll have a new idea created from it. Sometimes even have a new idea the first time you encounter it. And you're going to have an idea about what you read in the parasha, an understanding of what you read in the parasha. Say, oh, maybe he did this because of that. If you have that and it makes sense to you, ooh, that's delicious. You come up with something that's not clearly there, that's a lot of fun. But before you get ahead of yourself, make sure you don't assume that what you thought is the truth just because you thought it or just because it makes sense. You have to see what the sages said. You have to look at Rashi. You have to look at the Ramban. You have to look at the Maharal, the Marsha. You have to look at the different commentaries in the Midrash. You have to see what different sages that reviewed this point that you're discussing, that you're thinking of, that you're developing. And if you're in a path of truth, you'll find friends. You'll find that somebody else said what you said you'll find somebody head towards that direction. You'll find somebody said a different part of the same thing that you said and therefore you can build on it because this can lead to this. But sometimes you'll find that what you said is the opposite of what the sages said. And it's not fun. At first, 
to know that what you concluded simply is not the truth. Why? The sages said the opposite. And what you're saying is contradicting to what they said. The reality is, even though it's much more fun to find a chidush, know that going through the mistakes and admitting them is also supposed to be fun. Because that allows you to develop a mindset of how to know and how to decipher between truth and lies without holding too much weight of where it comes from, whether it comes from you or it comes from somebody else. In fact, it's going to teach you how it's critical for you to find friends in our tradition, in our Masoret, in all of your learning, because when you're on the right road, you'll find friends. If you haven't found friends, it's either because you haven't looked hard enough or at all, or you're in a desert. It's best not to be in a desert. But this is part of learning Torah. Now, there are certain things that are understandings that are extraordinary enough at face value and there's no need to innovate. There are some things that you just have the urge to innovate. You have the urge to want to extrapolate more from it. All of it is good, but it's important to know that it cannot be an invention. It has to follow the same tradition, even if you are a genius, even if you are, at least in your mind, the Rogachova Gaon, which doesn't exist in this generation. But the point is, is that a person that claims that he knows so much and he's read so much, you could already assume he's a liar. But he just knows how to hold the conversation and take advantage of people's ignorance. Bezat Hashem, this very basic, fundamental teachings of the Chazonish will allow us to desire to cleave to our tradition and our Masoet and our sages to understand that it's okay even if it's not new because we could still benefit from innovations. We could benefit from the innovations of the material world. We could benefit from the innovations of the spiritual world as long as their foundation is the truth. Thank you very much for learning with me. May HaKadosh Baruch Hu bless each and every single one of you that learned together with us, shared this lecture, supported in any way that you possibly can by donating on the website or helping us in other ways by volunteering to share the knowledge, to share the different information that we have available for free. And most importantly, those of you that take this Torah to heart and apply it to your life, the best of your ability, because that is the greatest gift not only for us, but for yourself. Lastly, anyone that wants to show up to uh, uh, the event that we're going to hold in the next uh, several weeks here in South Florida, please RSVP to events at bhtorah.org so we know how many people to expect, and then we're going to let you guys know about the location. May Hashem bless you. May Hashem 
We'll learn again later this uh, week. It's not going to be a shiur on Tuesday, but we'll have one on Wednesday. But Bezat Hashem, I have a surprise for you guys. Bezat Hashem, hopefully for Tuesday night that uh, will keep you busy and inspired and Bezat Hashem motivated to do more and more to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu. to everyone. We'll talk soon.